This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is like catch up at the start, followed by two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one chosen by myself. We pick our topics from the Macon Briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and more. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to come to some sort of conclusion on the state of culture, media, tech, food, whatever it may be in our modern times. Also, if you like this podcast, the best thing you can do for it is share your favorite episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. Okay, let's get straight into it. There's no nuance, no nuance allowed today. It's just going to be blunt hammering. All right. My subject today is, is it possible to become a mega influencer anymore? Just going to reveal the answer right now. The answer is maybe presented in this article. (laughs) (laughs) So there is no definite answer. Some people say yes. Some people say no. Before I even get into what the article says, I'm going to ask you, do you think it's possible? No, I don't. Why not? I will tell people what the article says, but because so much of the article, it's not a bad article, but because there's no real consensus and also there's no like authoritarian body on what is an influencer, unlike your topic, which is about tax, like there's a very clear cut definition of what a tax is, right? There is no such thing when it comes to influencing. So before we even get into whether mega influencing is possible, I thought it might be helpful to start with, how do you define an influencer? This you're asking for my personal opinion. I'm asking you to try to define it for someone who doesn't know what an influencer is, like your grandma or like a child. An influencer is somebody who has the ability to influence some sort of action uh, and Okay, the first thing I learned in school about definitions of words is not to yeah, use the same word allowed. i knew it okay an influencer is somebody who <laughs> is able to <laughs> evoke some sort of action or reaction and an outcome from uh you consuming something from them because generally speaking influencers are doing things that you consume yeah. generally and I would add somewhere in there something about an influencer being a individual or a personal entity, which sounds like an oxymoron, but I think what I'm trying to get at is there's still a difference at the smaller levels between an influencer as a person and the influencer as a brand and a company. Even though it looks like when you get to the mega influencer level, it becomes that, it becomes a brand and company. Yes, yeah. Having gotten your description, which I I buy, I accept as like ground level. I'm going to tell you a couple of things in this article. Is that all right? So is it possible to become a mega influencer anymore is an article in Fashionista written by Alexandra Ilyashov. It's pretty long. It consists mainly of interviews aggregated together in a way that Like I said, it's hard because this article doesn't make an argument for yes or no, but it sort of lays the ground of what the landscape looks like. And maybe it's possible to be a mega influencer and maybe influencing is viable, but also maybe it isn't. 
is kind of the conclusion to be drawn here. So some things in it, which are factual, which we can go off of is influencer wasn't really a word that we were using in the sense we are now 10 years ago. So it's still relatively new. I think something that we started doing 10 years ago is still new. Influencer marketing is expected to be worth $10 billion by 2020, which suggests to me that you and I are in the wrong industry. Mega influencers considered OGs are Ariel Sharness from Something Navy, Kiara Faragni from The Blonde Salad, Amy Song from Song of Style, and Leandra Medine from The Man Repeller. And I put the blog names because that's where they come from, and people might be more familiar with those blogs than the actual person. And they're considered OGs because they were doing blogging first, and then when Instagram and YouTube kind of swooped in, they used those platforms in ways that push them into becoming these mega influencers who collaborate with luxury brands and are like at the top of this system. Oh, also in the description, we have to say that influencers are not celebrities. So even though celebrities might act as influencers, that's not really what we're talking about here. I mean, to me, it seems just a game of relativity. No, but the thing is like a celebrity such as Gwyneth Paltrow, she came up through acting. And so she does have a lot of influence, but that's not the type of person we are talking about right now. Well, the thing is that what defines a celebrity is fame and public attention accorded by the mass media. Is it though? That's, I think, the big determinant. Well, I guess by virtue of I always fame, think of celebrity as hmm, weird. I always thought of celebrity as linked to something else that you did in your career. Though I guess Paris Hilton is a celebrity and what does she do? She sells perfume in the Middle East. Okay, so you've totally derailed me with now having to define celebrity. I guess the point is that influencers are more similar to regular people, which is something that Yuli Ziv, the founder of Style Coalition, an influencer marketing platform said. She said, you know, there's still room for anyone new to come up as an influencer because people like to follow influencers who are relatable. So, so long as there's still influencers who are not relatable, it suggests that there's room for more people. Something I found really interesting that she said about what brands are looking for, I'm just going to directly quote from her. Ultimately, the tier of influencer or profile that a brand will choose to engage with will depend on the campaign goals they're trying to achieve. If a brand wishes to create awareness, then they are better off with mega influencers as they act as a megaphone, creating echo around the event, campaign, or product launch. If their main objective is to attract a more local, connected audience, then they are more likely to activate the mid-tier influencers as they would be more willing to post regularly about the brand and engage their local audience in a community approach. Lastly, a micro-influencer will serve the purpose not of a megaphone, but of a connector. I just found that really helpful because she splits it into three and then defines those three really clearly. I think in practice, it doesn't look as clean as this, but in theory, it's a nice way to start thinking about the ways brands and influencers work together, especially for people who might not be in this, neither be on the brand side or the influencer side. Okay, so to address the same question again, is it possible to become a mega influencer? You said no. Wait, did you ever explain why you said no? The reason why I think it's more and more challenging 
is because of the inability to have concentrated focus and effort around one thing. What do you mean? Because I think now there's so many more. You mean as a person? Yeah, as a person, but also from just a an actual structural standpoint. So if there are a handful of social media platforms out there that are increasingly more algorithmically driven, that's one way of looking mm-hmm. at it, right? So that prevents people from potentially seeing content. I mean, obviously, viral content in itself will, generally speaking, be pushed to the top. Yeah. Okay, one way of looking at it. Second way is just pure attention, like the actual time spent where there's so much suppression of organic stuff, assuming that becoming an influencer requires some level of organic growth, right? Versus like, hey, you know what? I mean, I bet you I could become an influencer if I had, you know, a million dollar a month budget to put on Facebook ads. You? Yeah. Right? I mean- Like you personally, Eugene. I think it's possible. Yeah, I'm sure whoever. Like the egg was obviously Uh, something unique, but I don't think that's like- don't think it was possible just for anyone with a million dollars a month. You'd have to hire some people. I think you could. I, th- I 100% think you could. But basically, I don't think you have the same level of velocity that you did in the past because there's just so many things pulling your attention. Yeah. Right? The consumer's like, attention. Like the audience's attention. Exactly. It, it's very hard to focus time and uh, resources into one singular thing when everyone's split across so many different places, right? Like Facebook, Instagram, I mean, obviously they're owned by the same parent company, TikTok, Twitter, like how do you kind of create mass influence? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, maybe some of these Instagrammers don't have like massive Twitter followings, but you know, at the end of the day, if you follow 2000 people, it, I think at some point it requires something very special for you to follow that extra person. Yeah. Another metric that I don't think I mentioned yet that I did find helpful for people trying to understand this landscape coming from an outside perspective is Alyssa Coscarelli, who used to be at Refinery29 and is now trying to be an influencer herself. She describes a micro-influencer as going from 10 to 20K followers and then mid-ranges 30K to 50K. She she was into four. Like big is 100K to 300K. And then mega is 300 to 500K. I mean, people will disagree on those metrics, but I think that is kind of a rough guideline for someone out there who's trying to understand what we mean when we say mega influencer versus micro influencer. The thing is, is that those numbers are absolutely irrelevant if your reach is compromised, right? By the platform. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. I'm going to get there. Wait, I'm I'm going to get there to the platform bit. I promise. But to go back to why some of these people say it is possible, Eliza Licht from DKNY PR Girl says, you just need to double down on your brand DNA. And before you talk back, Leandra Medine says it takes grit and belief that the world needs you in it. Her literal quote is, it's not resilience, maybe it's grit, but requires an inability to see the world in a way wherein what you're doing is not part of it. And then Brittany Hennessy, who was previously at Hearst, says, since influencers keep moving upwards on this ladder from micro to macro to whatever, mega, there's room always at the bottom of the ladder. And I think I disagree with all three of these things. Yeah. (laughs) I think all three of these points 
really do not mean that you can become a mega influencer. Can you break them down? Like in your yeah. yeah. Liza Licht, she says, double down on your brand DNA. Even if you really believe in who you are, which I think is great as like personal growth, you really should believe in who you are and have a solid view on that. That does not mean people will necessarily be attracted to it. And it also doesn't talk about how you present it in a way that pulls people in. I mean, maybe I'm probably flattening it or maybe these quotes like have more to them. But that's part of my concern is that it's not just knowing who you are, but being able to talk about it in a way that pulls people in consistently. Leandro Medine saying it takes grit and belief that the world needs you in it. Yes, it does. That's commitment, right? And with making as well, we know a lot about commitment to a thing and seeing it through. But beyond commitment, like you said, you need to have money because how long can you be committed and not make money? And also just distribution itself is always going to be suppressed. Like I think that's the biggest thing that people don't wrap their heads around. But the place that you can actually build mega influence is on a new platform, but you also need that new platform itself to be massive. Yeah. Right? If the new social media platform pops up tomorrow and your user number 17 and it ends up being massive and you're a great creator or whatever then yes, there's an opportunity. But you also have to think like, what's the reality of like the next big social media platform popping up? Yeah, It's not that it's not possible, but like TikTok is like owned by a massive company. And TikTok is probably the closest thing in a post Snapchat world that actually has achieved some level of notoriety and or has made people question, oh, there is more to the big- Instagram and YouTube. Three or four or whatever. And Facebook. Like Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Snapchat, right? Twitter. Actually pertinent to this conversation, the only two worth talking about are Instagram and YouTube. And this article does cover platform. I just haven't gotten to that part of this conversation yet. I'm going to finish off where I was and then go back to this platform topic. The last point, which I disagree with the most, is the point about the ladder moving upwards, so there's always room at the bottom. Like that's just not how things work. I'm a great example too. Like I might be one of those quote unquote like influencers, but I'm like shedding followers. Like people yeah, don't give a shit yeah, what I have to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know that's I mean? part of the movement. I would agree that there is movement. Influencers get bigger, influencers get smaller, influencers disappear. But that doesn't mean that there is like increasing amounts of room at the bottom because we are all at the bottom. Literally everyone who has an Instagram account is at the bottom together. So there's movement, but that doesn't mean that movement is creating space. Now let's talk about platform. So this article does mention that if you are in this really for money, what you should be doing is you should be on YouTube. So that's the piece of advice out there for anyone listening, trying to be an influencer. The most lucrative things, and they're really flat about this, which I appreciate, like their honesty, is being in beauty and being on YouTube in beauty. Like that's going to get you the biggest contracts and long-term financial sustainability. Yeah, that's, that's kind of messed. What do you mean? You have to continually shill beauty products to people like, oh, you're not good enough, so you need to learn how to like utilize this product or that product, right? Yeah. 
actually the, the cost of being female, basically. I got into somewhat of a disagreement with Joan on this subject. She had the same stance as you. Yeah, there's she, the cost of and, of and by saying that I mean I that I disagree, but <laughs> no, I mean I see your point slash her point. The fact that beauty on YouTube makes so much money is depressing in a way because it means that there's all of these audience, all of these numbers watching these videos and why are they watching it? You know, and that goes way more psychological than just they're watching it for entertainment, which is what you're getting at, right? That they yeah. are watching it because of some kind of concern about the way they look and the way they perform their appearance in public. The thing is that despite... Knowing that, and I, I don't approve of big brands doing that to people like, you know, the Sephora's and Lancome's and L'Oreal's of the world, um, capitalizing on that. But I do think that beauty is not just bad, that beauty can be really significant for people and it is part of identity in, in a good way as well. The way like fashion is about expressing who you are, I think. Beauty and makeup can also be about expressing that same thing in a healthy way and not just about being self-conscious or concerned about the way you look in some kind of stereotypical, like oppressed manner. One of the links that we shared uh, was in relation to the article by Eugene Wei, a much more intelligent Eugene than myself. And his article was status as a service. Yeah. And essentially what it talked about was what drives utility and popularity amongst social media platforms. And I think that, you know, it actually took a super zoomed out approach on what are things that allow us to display status. Cause that's part of it too. Cause like if you're a part of a social media platform, it doesn't allow you to sufficiently display status, then it might also prevent you the opportunity from growing really quickly. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's almost like this too. It's like, I'm curious on like Visco, right? Where you have no metrics around how many followers, posts, likes, et cetera. If that changes how you follow people. Yeah. Because there is no sort of existing validator. Oh, I might be the 21st, or I might be like the 10,000th person to follow this person because I know that people before me probably see somebody or see something of interest in this person. So that's another thing too, that maybe if the future is around pure creation, then maybe there is less of an opportunity for people to become super influential. If it's not inherently in the system, there's small things that I think help grease the groove a little bit. Like if I see someone and they're like, oh, I've never heard of this person they have, you know, and they fall in that that smaller influencer range, I might be a little bit more interested than someone that already has 1.9 million followers. Yeah, I agree. And I think we can keep talking about platform now, having talked about everything else, because I did have a question as to what you think or we think influencers should do in terms of platform. Like, should they double down on Instagram? Where are platforms heading next? Is there some way to subvert the existing platforms? No, because they own the pipes. Like you can game the system. Well, game the pipes, but they're going to patch the pipes at some point. Yeah, so that's one thing they said that some people in this said, okay, well, 
if you're in it already, like if you have like a decent sized, you know, tens of thousands following, you should just stay on Instagram and you should be flexible to the way Instagram moves and keep changing, not your brand, but the format you present yourself, the way you approach people as a result of the platform changes. Something they don't mention, well, they do talk about how they don't think that a new platform is likely, which I also disagree with. I think, I don't know if this is naive. I don't really have numbers to back this up, but I think it's possible that something in the future could replace Instagram. Yeah, no, I totally could. Because Instagram's not that old. I mean, like, yes, it's been around a minute. We've had this conversation. Like Tumblr at some point was also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, exactly. Massive. Yeah, and we didn't see that going away or MySpace or whatever. So I don't think it's a good predictor to be like Instagram's around forever. So I would say if you were someone young right now, or I guess you don't have to be young, but you're trying to get into influencing, I would think about is there a way to subvert the existing platforms and also like really keep an eye out of what's like on the come up? Like you were saying, like, Mm -hmm. can you use TikTok or I don't even know, like real life engagements to get growth? I'm not saying Instagram isn't a part of it. Like I'm sure it is a part of it because that's the reality of our world right now. But I would just like keep one eye open for how you could head into something next. Because the OGs themselves, they didn't start on Instagram. The reason they're big is because they started in blogging. Yeah. Well, let's put it. I'm saying it's like what maybe whoever is big next in the next 10, 15 years is going to have started from somewhere else that is not Instagram. What I believe, like in regards to that, I think that's pretty valid. But one thing that might actually change the way people can differentiate themselves is if the barrier to entry is higher. So if the requirement to create compelling content is higher. And I think TikTok is a good example of it. Have you even used it extensively? It's kind of like Instagram stories meets... Vine? Yeah, like Vine kind of, but like a little bit longer. So you actually need to create good content. Film editing. It takes film editing skills. A little bit, but also just like compelling content. I mean, this goes back to what you were saying about having... Did you say something about being able to do something as an influencer? Uh, Just having like a skill. Yeah. Actually, that is something Leandro Medin says. I thought this was a really good quote. Leandro Medin said, the thing I'd like to see in the future is less emphasis on an influencer's social following and more emphasis on what value they bring to a brand. Instead of using an influencer as a model of some sort, what if it's someone's illustrations you really adore? What if you really lean on a person's talent instead of the superficial points of what they look or sound like. And I think this gets to the crux of something about influencing that really bugs me is because they're basically models, like fashion models, instead of doing something like writing or film editing or singing or making whatever. I don't know. I I feel like that's a naive, optimistic hope for the future, but I'm just going to put it out there. Let's put it this way. Yes, the world of being a mega influencer will continue to live on, but a lot of things are out of your control. Yeah. Yeah. That's the end of the story. No, one more question. Are you tired of hearing about influencers and talking about them? No, because I think influencers themselves is just like a catch-all term, right? 
that's all it really comes down to. Like I think there's quote unquote influencers that just happen to be very smart, articulate people that have value to bring into this world. So like be be tired of the of the influencer thing, but just be more cognizant of the fact that it actually doesn't paint everyone with the same broad stroke. What's my conclusion to draw? I just from gave this? you the conclusion. I just gave you the conclusion. That was my subject. Fine. I'll conclude yours. Good, con- good conclusion, Eugene. Good conclusion. Thank you. I have Thank nothing you. to add. All right. So my topic is China proposes luxury tax increase to rein in millennial debt. And this was seen on Jing Daily. Basically, the Chinese government wants to enforce a new tax on luxury products purchased by people, like not just millennials. And what's interesting is that this is actually a a relatively widespread problem where there's a lot of people that just generally rack up a lot of debt. They're known also as the Moonlight Clan, where they spend all of their paycheck before they receive it. Tell me how much debt they're in. Yeah, so the average debt of some of a millennial person in, in China is about seventeen thousand four hundred and thirty-three U.S. dollars, and on average in the United States, that debt is about thirty-six thousand. So it's about twice as much in the U.S. Uh, and the debt is incurred for various reasons, which I think is across the board something that is applicable to a lot of countries, cultures. It's like instant gratification, high cost of living in the city. And of course, kind of keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. I, I love saying this last point about keeping up with the Joneses because keeping up with the Joneses is very much kind of fundamentally rooted in collectivist cultures with the idea of face, right? It's not yeah. exactly the same. Yeah. It's more like, hey, I need to prove to the to people and I need to create some sort of value for I need to show my my value. Why is this your favorite point? Why is this Because so I think that ultimately it forces people from in collectivist cultures to really embrace consumerism because they need to show they have something of value mm-hmm. on their body. Right? Yeah. You know what? Bape was honestly the cleanest hustle because what other product in the realm of streetwear at that time could signify I had the money to spend whatever 70 US dollars on a t-shirt than a babe shirt. You make right? You couldn't really get that from point. an American brand. Likewise, watches all that stuff. So I, I, there's actually a, this really interesting quote from a different article on Jing Daily. Everyone working in my company, from receptionists to managers, own at least two luxury handbags. And I know a majority of my colleagues at my level borrow money to pay for this high-spending lifestyle. And then she also went on to say- This is a regular person. Yeah, just a, uh, like a, what they call an Asian OL, an office lady. <laughs> um, OL and KOL. KOL is key opinion leader. So that's like your influencer in Asia. Not key office um, lady? No, unfortunately <laughs> not. Um, Sorry. So- When she was pressed on whether she was concerned about repaying the debt, she said, I will beg my parents to pay it off for me when I go home for the Lunar New Year in February. And that seems to be quite the trend. I mean, she's probably not the average OL, to be honest. She's like kind of, you know, raking in the dough. Or she comes from a family of affluence, we'll say. Yeah. I mean, she at least comes from a background where her parents, she knows her parents can pay it off. Yeah. So... 
basically, let's say this tax that is imposed, one thing. Wait, that it wait, instantly... finish the story. You missed off the last sentence because I cut you off. Okay, yeah, this is the last part. So this girl was highly confident her parents would pay off her debt because she did not ask her parents for a luxury car as a gift as many of her other friends did. So, I mean, this is just like a next generation of like affluence in China. I mean, it is what it is. I'm actually, I don't know. I'm desensitized. There's no You're desensitized? I'm not desensitized. I think about that. I'm like, Like, I just think it happens. I think it happens all the time. So I'm like, oh, like, wow. Another story of someone with a nice ass car. Okay. Before you move on, which I know that you still have things to say about this tax. Something in me still reacts personally to stories like this because it's people my age who might be in similar positions as me financially, but instead of saving their money, choose to spend all of their money and then to rely on their parents to keep them going. Yeah. Okay, maybe part of it is jealousy. I'll just be straight. Part of it is probably jealousy, but also part of it is just like, it makes no sense to me. Like, I just can't wrap my mind around operating in that way and imagining what life is like. Yeah. Where I would be comfortable not just spending everything I have in the bank, but also racking up credit card debt and then also asking my parents for money. Okay. You can keep talking about tax. Yeah. The reason why I was so interested in this was that, I'm just curious, what role should the government play in our personal lives? Uh, Even if the outcome is positive, like can we trust ourselves damn this is taking like a socialist well turn no now. but i like i think that i was using i think luxury products are a little bit different because they are exactly that they're luxury and it reminded me of um the idea of soda taxation mm-hmm. which most recently is something that occurred in well not most recently but it happened in new york which i know you you post a link but i there's actually some studies done and the outcomes include a 10% tax was levied in January 2014 in Mexico uh, and after one year there was a 12% reduction they also did something similar in Berkeley, California and consumption dropped anywhere between 9.6 and 52% but caveat anywhere between but they said that it was really dependent on time period examined and methods used. We can at least say there was a um, reduction. Of 9.6%, at least. Anyways, another one. There was a 1.5 cent per ounce tax in Philadelphia. And the actual sales of the affected beverages, which included diet beverages, dropped 46%. But when accounting for people traveling to neighboring cities without a tax, overall purchases of the affected beverages dropped 20%. So... Yes, where the tax was hitting the hardest, massive reduction, but it also subconsciously or consciously pushed people to consume less of it. Interesting. So it works. I would say that it works if you see them as adjacent and like comparable goods. I mean, anecdotally, we know that it also works on cigarettes and alcohol. I don't have the data for that, but because that's why I I'm said sure, anecdotally. Yeah, something there. But I have been yeah. in different places where the tax on those things is higher. And again, totally anecdotally, but I do feel like the consumption is lower because you know you're paying more out of pocket. Or you would just wait until you can get cigarettes and alcohol from somewhere else. The thing that spurred my interest, should the government play a role in our personal lives? 
Mm. Well, but the thing is, it's tough. I like, kind of cut think you it's... off earlier because you were trying to say that China is in a financial situation that they need to fix. Yes, yes. So it's not just that they're trying to meddle in personal lives. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, to the point about this, the government in these places that instituted soda taxes are doing it on the basis of wanting to reduce diabetes and hospital yes. visits, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. I don't so think it is the kind two are of not similar. The, same. the luxury tax goods is not the same as the soda tax because I think the reasoning is different. Though similar because they are taxes on goods, right? So soda tax, tricky, isn't it? Because it's about health. Well, let's put it this way. If there are no repercussions to incurring some sort of greater debt, whether it's financial debt or health debt, then it's a moot point, right? Like if you have $18,000 worth of debt and that soon becomes 29000 but it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, then nothing you do will really fix it unless it hits some sort of real critical mass. Are you talking as a personal individual? As an individual utilizing like what it means to take on more debt. Because if they, even if they put a tax on, it's not stopping you from buying it. It's just more expensive and you're paying more for but it. I think it might stop people from buying it. Well, if you're that like that office Wait, lady- Wait, sorry. Did we ever say this? How much are they taxing the luxury goods? I think it was more proposed, but oh, okay. but it that girl, proposed. that girl who, that girl is probably a very unique situation. But yeah, I think that for someone like her, it probably doesn't matter that much. But for somebody, but to China makes a big difference because you're talking me personally. I go from eighteen thousand to twenty nine thousand. That's only eleven thousand to me. But eleven thousand times however many millennials in China wouldn't to China that be a lot? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I guess to that point, I guess maybe on, a, on an individual level, it matters less, but on to the government, a larger it's significant, sort of, which I would yeah. guess is why they're no, trying to that's, fix it. No, that's, that's point taken. That's fair. Yeah. But to go back to the health thing, yeah. the soda tax, right? On the flip side, if the government replaced all water fountains with free soda fountains, that would be irresponsible. Like I, I just say that with like say certainty. If the government replaced water fountains in a city with free soda pop machines, okay, like ignore the expense. They just decide we're going to put soda pop machines wherever there are water fountains and they're going to be free mm -hmm. and you can have all the soda you want. I definitely think that that is an irresponsible move based off of health reasons. I think I guess what I'm saying is like the government is already intruding in our personal lives like water fountains for example well, they put water fountains or they I don't mean, that is something that affects my personal habits i would argue that drinking water is really important i think that i think the way you're positioning it too is a little bit negative like the way they 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 sort of infiltrate or whatnot like yes some governments obviously have much different interests in what they're trying to achieve but i think that there are places where I think, and I'm not saying China's a bad place. I'm just saying like they're in a, in a proper, healthy functioning government. I think there's definitely a positive outcome here, right? Because at the end of the day, like their role is to, for the advancement and continuation of, of a, a culture and society within their, their physical boundaries, right? So obviously 
I was actually trying to say that by doing the soda tax, yes, it's yes. a responsible yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. It isn't over meddling because the inverse is irresponsible. Got it. No, no, no. Yeah. I think we're in agreement there. Unfortunately, sure. yeah. because we got feedback that we agree too much. We have to sound like we're arguing, but then ultimately agree with each other. I think we're, we can't give each other so much time to think. That's, that's where the slip ups happen, you know? You got to keep each other on your toes. <laughs> All right, let's call it a day. I think for me, the final conclusion on this piece of news is actually not related to the soda tax as interesting as that subject was, but it goes back to what you were saying about a collectivist society where is it possible that this tax might decrease the feeling Chinese citizens have regarding keeping up with the Joneses? Could it be possible? No. Aw, Eugene. Of course, it totally would the not. Squash it, but because maybe it, it would. Like, No, it wouldn't because status itself can be conferred in other ways. Oh, shoot. Right? What if this goes the opposite way? What if it's like, oh, now they're tax higher, but I can still afford it despite the tax? Yeah, exactly. Like you're always going to find ways to create status. Wow, you just you just killed my you killed my hopeful summary. My hopeful summary was tax results in Chinese citizens spending less. No, I disagree. I don't think so because they'll just find other ways to create status or show status. It's like, hey, instead of going to Hong Kong for my vacation, I'm now going to the Maldives. And if that isn't good enough, then I'm going to go to Paris. And if that's not good enough, I'll go to North, the North Pole. I feel sure, like that's better. Whatever, whatever it is. I subjectively feel like that's a better way to floss than luxury bags. But it won't change. It, won't, it will not change your cultural outlook. Let's do one reader question, I, which I actually took from Slack. If you guys notice, we didn't do our reader questions and we're now moving it to the end. We also cut Just, the banter. You know, we'll get straight into we it. We cut our banter at the beginning and we're putting whatever random intro stuff we like to talk about at the end. If you had feedback, you can let us know. Yes. I have actually taken this reader question not from Instagram, but from Slack. Ross asked on Slack, what does the alt text function in Instagram do? It claims it's for the visually impaired users, but how does it show? The reason I wanted to bring this up because I think it's really important. <laughs> I just use reader questions as an agenda for myself. Yes. So Instagram in the end of November said, we're proud to improve Instagram today for people with visual impairments. Starting today, we are automatically adding alternative text to photos on feed, explore, and profile so people who use screen readers can hear what's in the photo. So what this means is that Instagram is using AI to automatically figure out what's in your photos, what's in visual content, to add that into screen readers for people who use screen readers. And the reason I think that there is confusion or not clarity is that many of us are not visually impaired. But if you are significantly visually impaired, you might still be using social media apps like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, but you don't actually look at your screen. You listen to what is on the screen. And I think this is confusing mm -hmm. because it's really hard to imagine. Like 
imagining, closing your eyes and trying to, in your brain, imagine your Instagram feed just being spoken to you. But that's what it is. Yeah. Um, At the same time as this AI rollout, Instagram added a feature where you can type in your alternative text as well. So you can add richer descriptions for people who use screen readers. So for example, for you, you take a lot of photos of Shamshui Po. So Instagram might just say like (laughs) picture of construction or picture of man holding bamboo. That might be their description. But you could say, you know, Shamshui Po around the corner from a Hong Kong office is a construction field, et cetera. Yeah. So I think that's really cool. A lot of people actually said it was too late, but better late than never. And I think it does make an impact on people who use screen readers. That's it from me. I'm sorry, I totally didn't even give you a chance to answer that question. I just came in here with the Q and the A. I didn't have an answer, so it doesn't really matter. Another question is from Skylar on Slack. How will secondhand retail grow as people become more conscious of how their consumption impacts the environment? I am personally kind of worried about this because I guess I am afraid that secondhand items become more similar to mass market items. And I suppose it doesn't matter so long as they're still secondhand. Wait, 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 wait. What do you mean by that? How do they I don't know how similar? this would happen exactly, but I am afraid that there'll become some kind of link between like H&M and then secondhand markets where things say that they're secondhand, but actually they come from H&M factories. Got it. I, I'm not saying that that is exactly what happens. I just feel like there is a way. Like direct to outlet. Yeah. I am just aware that wow. maybe the fast fashion companies are going to find a way to like slip into those secondhand stores or secondhand markets pretending like they're not. Yeah. That's me on my bleak. Interesting cuz like I started doodling literally 30 seconds ago this flow chart and I I was thinking about how people's underlying people's underlying Desire to curtail their their consumption habits actually has massive ramifications and even tips back into the first topic because you're talking about influencers, yeah. right? And most of these people are putting things out there so we consume, yeah. and especially yeah. those fashion influencers are putting new things, product yeah. into this world, new things. So many things can happen. Like this is the shift I personally see. Number one, we, I think. Increasingly, because there's so much stuff being created, regardless of environmental output, we don't really buy stuff on full price anymore. We buy stuff on sale. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we become more accustomed to sending stuff to the goodwill and charity or whatnot, yeah. or selling and it. And it becomes hands. a better system because right now it's kind of a janky one. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially disrupts people that make a living off of creating fashion and creating clothing, mm-hmm. right? Could be. Maybe it's net positive. It's for certain net positive if a bunch of brands just closed up shop tomorrow. Definitely. Because environmentally speaking, right? Whether they're good or bad, and some are good brands, some are bad brands, it's just like, you know. I would be willing. Oh, gosh, this is a really hard thing to say. But I would be willing for us societally to take a creative hit or a potentially creative hit in exchange for improving the environment. And I, don't, I know it's not like one-to-one yeah. like that, but just talking out loud conceptually, that's a trade I would make. Yeah. Yeah, so that's one thing that's 
most certainly going to happen. Um, and I don't know if that's good or bad. I mean, you said it's like it's probably better, net positive, but I think there's a lot of disruption by virtue of us becoming more aware of the circumstances behind the environment, behind the amount of stuff tossed out and or donated and or yeah. like in the case of H&M, like burned yeah. because yeah. they couldn't move their inventory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a sobering end to this episode. <laughs> no, but that's how things go. Yeah. All right, let's cap it off. You got to get out of here. You got to go to school. I got to go. Good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about making, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makein.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us individually at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. Or the easiest way is to DM us at Macon on Instagram. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. Thank you.